Well, this morning we uh, return to the book of Luke, so named for its author who was a doctor and is the patron saint of doctors, thus the many St. Luke hospitals across the country and around the world, as well as the Luke Society. I have a doctor friend who's a, a member of the Luke Society. It's a, kind of the Christian version of Doctors Without Borders. It's a gospel-hearted, worldwide medical ministry that's based here in the United States. Luke's audience is uh, Theophilus. We see that back in verse 3. It's a man whose name means friend of God. What a beautiful name, friend of God. I knew a Theophilus, Theophilus Schmid, and he's a man who lived up to his name. Well, Theophilus is also the one for whom Luke wrote the second volume, the companion volume uh, to this one, the Acts of the Apostles. Kenny mentioned that to us four weeks ago. And Luke's aim in writing to Theophilus is the sum total of verse number four. You can see it there. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke here is doing Christian apologetics. The purpose of which is to make Theophilus, and by extension those of us here this morning, uh, certain, uh, assured, Uh, convinced of what we already know, especially since what we know is regularly challenged in in this world which we live. So this is why apologists like Nancy Piercy and Bill Craig, just to name a couple, are so greatly appreciated throughout the church. Well, how did Luke go about strengthening the certainty of Theophilus' faith? Well, he did it in a twofold fashion. First, he did his homework. Verse number three tells us that he had not only followed all things for some time past, but that he had followed all things closely for some time past. That's why Luke is able to write with historical precision on matters concerning a, a politics and family and chronology. That's why he's able to write with exacting detail concerning the the wonder of the crowd in verses 21 and 22, or the thoughts and the emotions of Mary in verse number 29. That's why he's able to write with the necessary warts and all approach to a credible history. As on the one hand, Luke highlights the beautifully unvarnished faith of the adolescent Mary and on the other hand, he highlights the shocking absence of it in the adult Zechariah. So just as our own Fred Sanders knows his stuff on the Trinity, and Karen Statina knows her stuff on the Reformation, Luke knows his stuff about, as he put it, all Jesus began to do and teach. Now, it's one thing to know your stuff. It's one thing to have done your homework, but it's another thing to communicate it in a convincing fashion. And that's why Luke not only did his research, but second, he wrote an orderly account of it. We see that also in verse number three, one that's chronologically clear, one that's structurally sound. Now, just give me 90 seconds on this, okay? Just 90 seconds. As to chronological clarity, for instance, 
how the events of chapter 1, they're, they're benchmarked according to the months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So months 1 through 5 are noted in verse 24. Month 6 is noted in verse 26 and 36. Month 9 is noted in verse 56. So chronological clarity is one way that Luke provides Theophilus with a well-ordered, closely followed account. Another way is structural soundness. Good literary bones. So, for instance, the four scenes that are contained here in chapter 1 are each presented in the same way. They start with some background, then there's an appearance and an announcement, there's a question and a response and a close. So they all unfold in an identical fashion. 90 seconds is over. So Luke's presentation is structurally sound. Why do I mention these things? I mention them to highlight the fact that Luke is serious about his work. He's serious about that. This, this is not a story that was born of fancy, but of fact. And, and not random facts, but well-ordered facts. And facts that were presented not to confuse Theophilus, but to convince Theophilus, to, to make him even more certain, to build up his faith in what he'd been taught concerning the good news of Jesus Christ. Can he just refer to that? Gerald just referred to that. So in this passage here, verses 39 through 56, at which we're looking this morning, about what does Luke want Theophilus to be certain? Well, that question brings us to our main point for this morning, and it's simply this. Luke wants Theophilus, and us for that matter, to be certain about the blessedness of belief. In fact, that's the title of the sermon this morning. I searched for a better title. Now, if you talk to your great-grandmother on the phone this afternoon and she asks you, what did the preacher preach on this morning? And you say, grandmother, the blessedness of belief. She's going to get the vapors. That's going to sound so beautiful to her. But if you're talking to your unsaved next-door neighbor and you say, oh, our preacher this morning preached on the blessedness of belief, and he just thinks, that's why I don't go to church. What, <laughs> what does that even mean? But you know why at the end of the day I gave it that title? is because that's what this is about. <laughs> the blessedness of belief, that those who believe God's word as spoken on the page, straight up, unfiltered, are blessed by him, exalted by him, favored by him, under his smile, as the Puritans might have put it. And Luke makes that point in two ways. First, by extolling the blessedness of Mary and her belief. Uh, Elizabeth does that in verses 39 through 45. And second, by extolling the blessedness of God, the God in whom Mary believes. Mary does that herself in verses 46 through 56. Now, everything in this passage leads up to that second point with Mary taking the stage. But when Mary takes the stage, she turns the spotlight around and puts it on the Lord. And not just because of the way in which he had blessed her, but because of the way in which he would bless those in every generation. 
including our own, who take Him at His word. So this is a word for us to make us more certain in our faith, to make us more certain that those who believe in God are blessed by God, that those who take God at His word live under the favor of His smile. So, let's go to our passage where Luke begins, and I'm, I'm going to read it and do some running commentary along the way. We won't read <clears throat> the second half. Kenny already read that for us, but uh, this begins as do the other scenes with some background details followed by this grand appearance. So begin with me in verse uh, 39. Uh, where are, here we go. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste. Now that's the same word that's used to describe the dispatch with which the uh, shepherds ran from the fields to see the newborn Jesus on on Christmas morning, uh, went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, probably near Jerusalem. It would make sense for a priest to live near Jerusalem. And now here's the grand appearance. And Mary entered the house of Zechariah, he's the priest, and greeted Elizabeth, her relative whose own impossible pregnancy was the definitive sign that Mary herself was and possibly pregnant, back in verses 36 and 37. Luke continues, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, her baby, John by name, who back in verse 15 were told had already received the Holy Spirit, her baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was also filled with the Holy Spirit. So what do we have here? We have two women, uh, two relatives who are dramatically reunited. Uh, Mary after this hundred mile trek, Elizabeth coming out of a five month seclusion, two women who are impossibly pregnant. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, a physical impossibility. Mary, uh, an experiential impossibility. Two women who are living proof that, as announced in verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. So there's a lot going on. It's a supercharged atmosphere. And with an entree like that, it's no wonder that Elizabeth's announcement here in verses 42 through 45 comes at top volume. I mean, she is at the upper end of her range as she speaks. And it all stands in dramatic celebratory contrast to her husband's silence put upon him in verse number 20 and her own shame, her former shame about which we learned in verse 24. Well, to begin here, notice that Elizabeth announces that Mary is blessed. First, Mary is blessed among women. And she says that much, Elizabeth says that much in verse 42. Blessed are you among women. But be clear on this. Um, Elizabeth's announcement was not, was not a blessing on Mary. That, that is to say, 
an endowment of some kind of perpetual piety or sinlessness or, or something of the sort. No, rather, Elizabeth's announcement was a blessing that recognized the greatness of the one in Mary, leading Elizabeth to also announce, blessed is the fruit of your womb, verse 42, and to wonder, here's the question, why the mother of my Lord should come to me, acknowledging the lordship of Jesus even in utero. That fascinating? In fact, Elizabeth is the first human to declare Jesus as Lord, even though he is yet unborn, and to interpret the leaping of her own unborn baby as John's joyful response to the arrival of his cousin, on whose behalf he would one day give his own life, just as Jesus would do for him, along with that of the entire world. So, to be sure, Mary is blessed. But not because of who she is, but rather because of who is in her. Now, Mary's blessedness among women reminds me of a certain palm tree on Kalima Road that I see every day as I make my way to the office. And first pick it up about Kalima and Youngwood as you're moving, what would that be, south? It stands like a Saturn V rocket on the horizon. It's huge, and I see this thing every day. And one day, it got the better of me, and I thought, i got to go see this thing. And so I, I just continued on down Kalima, past Whittier Boulevard, didn't hang my usual left on Lambert, continued on down uh, past Broadway, waved to Teresa and Joey Vias, kept on going past Mulberry, and there it is on the right. But here's the fascinating thing. I found it's really not that tall of a tree at all. But it's located on a hill that elevates it above every other tree in the area. So it's not the tree, but the ground on which the tree is situated that makes it stand so tall, taller than any tree in the whole Cal High neighborhood. It's just magnificent. And that's like Mary. It, it, it's not that Mary herself has elevated status, but rather it's that the one in Mary has elevated her to a height at which we'll see in a moment even we can attain to. And that leads Elizabeth to announce the second reason why Mary is blessed. And Mary is blessed because of her belief. Her belief. Take a look at verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And this is in reference to what Eric uh, was showing us last week from verses 26 through 38. That without knowing a man, Mary would give birth to a boy who Gabriel told her would be son of the Most High, that is son of God, heir to the throne of David, that is, son of man, and as such, the everlasting king of an everlasting kingdom. Now, over the last two or three weeks, I have thought quite a bit about Elizabeth's words here, and I've been especially impressed by them in, in a couple of ways. First, by explicitly announcing Mary to be blessed for her belief 
uh, Elizabeth implicitly indicts her husband for his unbelief, basically throws Zachariah under the bus. And I remember the first time I read that, it made me laugh uh, out loud. I was alone, but I laughed out loud because I thought, oh, man, what? oh, what a gal. Yeah, Zachariah, you married a real pip there. But I began thinking about it more. And I realized I was impressed by, I was sobered by the fact that I'm Zechariah. I am Zechariah. Uh, like Zechariah, I spent my whole adult life in ministry. Like Zechariah, I'm closer to the end of my ministry than the beginning of my ministry. Like Zechariah, who no doubt wore a Levitically required beard, I have a beard. And it's white, probably like Zechariah's. Like Zechariah, my wife and I are beyond childbearing years. Like Zechariah, who for all the years and all the experience should have believed but didn't, I would have more than likely done the same. Now, that's not to say that Zechariah was an empty suit, because he wasn't. He was clearly a man of great faith. Do you remember Gabriel's first words to him in, in, in verse number 13? It's just, these are really fascinating. Uh, Gabriel said to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. So here's a guy with an infertile wife who's been praying that the Lord would give her a son. That takes faith. But when his prayer is answered, and in person no less, Zechariah fails to take God at his word. Now, and as much as I've been impressed with the similarities between Zechariah and myself and how I could take those things as is sometimes my personality right down to the basement, <laughs> I've actually been more impressed with this thought. I want to be like Mary. I want a faith like Mary, a Marian faith, if you will. I want a faith that outstrips that of a seasoned priest. I want a faith that takes God at his word so that when I read it, I say, yes, I believe that. And I know you do too. You want that kind of faith. So how do we believe like Mary? How do we believe like a girl from humble origins and all the limitations and challenges that that brings with it? How do we believe like a girl of only 12 to 14 years. That's how old she was, junior higher. Which tells me that Mary's belief isn't just for the adults among us here, but for the children and the teenagers as well. Well, the foundation of Mary's faith, the core of her belief, is <clears throat> revealed in the passage that Kenny read uh, which is her response to Elizabeth, a response that's often referred to as the Magnificat. 
Now, that word, the Magnificat, is the first word in the Latin rendering of this section. And it's a section that's been put to music by uh, literally hundreds, everybody from Pachelbel to Purcell, Telemann uh, to Bach and Mendelssohn and Tchaikovsky. So this, this is elevated uh, language, not only divine, but human as well. The first thing that we see in Mary's response to Elizabeth is that to believe like Mary requires a posture of humility. A posture of humility. Instead of lifting up herself in response to Elizabeth's words, Mary lifts up the Lord. Now, it would be very easy for Mary to lift up herself after hearing all that Elizabeth had just said. You know, man, I, I must have done something right. Yeah, maybe I'm not so, uh, so uh, backwards or bad or whatever as I, as I thought. I got to thinking about this in relation to myself. I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. That was the me generation, right? You put yourself right in the center of your world. It's all about you. Of course, truth be told, every generation is the me generation. But Mary doesn't fall for that trap. Instead of lifting up herself, she lifts up the Lord. Take a look at verses 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. E.V. Hill, some of you remember, Ed Hill, he was the pastor of uh, Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in downtown Los Angeles, and I remember Pastor Hill talking one time about Old 1800. Old 1800 was a woman who used to sit in the front row of his church every week, and they called her Old 1800 because nobody was sure quite how old she was, but they figured she was born sometime back in the 1800s. And so, and she went with that, so it's okay to laugh. So, old 1800 sat in the front row and always expected the Lord to be lifted up by whomever filled the pulpit, right? We preach not ourselves, but Christ crucified. So if a visiting preacher came through and wasn't lifting up the Lord soon enough for the likes of old 1800, she used to cry out, get him up! And if the preacher uh, ignored or became confused by what she was saying and kept on going down the same row, she would call out again, get him up! And she would continue to call uh, the preacher out until he got in the groove and she was satisfied. And from the outset of her response, Mary gets up, lifts up the Lord. She turns a spotlight around on him. Mary makes God the center of her response since she knows that what he is doing, he's doing not only for her, but for those in every generation. And she knows that by way of the Scripture. And that's the second thing we see in Mary's response to Elizabeth, that to believe like Mary requires a knowledge of God's Word. Mary had, no doubt, been raised 
had been raised on the scripture. It was the center of the Hebrew household. It was the duty of Jewish parents to teach it to their children, even the manner in which it was to be taught, Deuteronomy 6-7. But Mary had not only stored up all that scripture in her head, but she had stored it in her heart as well. In fact, so well that it permeated her person. It it filled the warp and woof of her being. It caused her to see things. Uh, In this case, through passages such as Genesis and Job and and, and 1 Samuel and and Psalms and Isaiah and Daniel, that, that she could not have seen otherwise. Mary's knowledge of the Scripture allowed her to understand what God was doing for her, to be sure, verses 48 and 49, as well as for everyone who fears him from generation to generation, verse number 50. And that God was beginning to fulfill these things in the present in answer to age-old promises, promises made in the past to put down the proud and to raise up the humble, verses 51 through 55. Again, Mary recognized what God was doing in the present because she knew what he had done in the past. And that came by reading the Bible. Mary's perspective and her endgame is expressed with great clarity by James Edwards, who writes these words. This is not a hymn of the proud, but the powerless. Not of just deserts, but of unexpected grace. Not of a world fully controlled and determined by human powers, but overturned by divine comedy. God is the subject of nearly every verb, and the verbs are all transitive. They do not declare who God is, but what God does as the powerful deliverer of the needy and oppressed. God doesn't turn away from want and oppression, but toward both in compassion and rescuing intervention. In most religions, a meeting with God requires the low to ascend high, sinners to become saints. The Magnificat reverses all protocol and expectations. God who is high becomes low. He sees human need and initiates a revolution that reorders reality. Mary believed that. She believed that. And she was blessed because of it. And the blessedness of Mary's belief, not some elevated status, but her belief is the point to this passage. But this blessed belief was not exclusive to Mary. And Jesus makes that point a few chapters later, 10 chapters later, in fact, chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, where we read, Jesus said these things, and uh, and a woman of the crowd raises her voice and says to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you were nursed. Now I can just imagine Jesus locking right in on this woman and saying to her, blessed rather are those of you who hear the word of God and keep it. That's who's blessed. And in that way, Mary was blessed. And in that way, we are blessed. And all those who fear him from generation to generation are blessed. Truly, those who take God at his word live under the favor of his smile. 
And Luke wanted Theophilus and you to be certain of that.